Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about heat. This 1995 film by Michael Mann is considered a quintessential cops and robbers epic. We look at Mann's attention to detail and his attempt at authenticity in light of the movie's influence on audiences, filmmakers, and real-life criminals. You can find the show at patreon.com slash supercontext, or you can leave a comment or send us an email to supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. When did you see Heat? And did you rob a bank afterward? Charlie, have you ever been in a physical fight? Yes. Okay. Have you ever stolen something? Oh, do I have to tell? Yes. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> have you ever been in a fight? Oh, yeah. How many? Uh, two or three. And yeah. how, uh, what, did, what did you steal? <laughs> this is a great story. I stole a copy of a Def Leppard cassette from a record store in Singapore. Chris, I have never loved you as much as I love you right now. <laughs> and I brought it home. I want to hold you in my arms. And my and mom found out. While we listened to Armageddon. It. <laughs> it was the record after that one. You're thinking after of, hysteria. You're thinking what of hysteria. I think you? I stole Pyromania. I can't oh, remember. That's the one before. That's oh, the one before. Okay, I stole one of them. It doesn't matter. Still love you. I was like 13, 14 years old. I stole yeah, it from were. a local record store. My mother made me go back down to the record store and give it back to them and explain myself. Uh, um, did they beat you with sticks? No, no. But um, you could imagine that was before all that happened. But I was kind of concerned given how draconian things were in Singapore. Yeah. Because yeah. that's where it happened. Yeah. Um, but that's the only thing I've like physically palmed and walked out of a place with. Yeah. Um, uh, and fights, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, like kind of where I grew up, it was just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> inevitably that's going to happen to you. Right. You had to handle business. Yeah. yeah. So Chris, why did you ask me that? Because while I was watching this movie, I was like, what is the, I love this movie and I know you love this movie. Boy, I love this movie, but there's a lot wrong with this movie and is it wrong with the movie or is it wrong with the people in it? I think it's wrong with the world. Yeah. There um, we go. And, and again, this, this is sort of a case of like, is this a film that's celebrating things that are wrong with the world? Or is this a film that is trying to point out things that are wrong with the world to us? And yet the audience mistakes that for, Ooh, look how cool that is. I want to be like Val Kilmer. <laughs> um, which leads me to like something you and I were just talking about off air, which is like, why, why do we watch crime fiction? Why do we read crime fiction? Why do we listen to true crime podcasts? Um, and f for me, part of it was like, I was wondering, is it because people have never had these things happen? These like the things that the high energy moments of these stealing things and or <laughs> having physical confrontations. I've never been in a gunfight. 
right? Oh God, me neither. And and I I don't want to be. But I would say, um, you know what? Here's how I'm going to shoehorn Letter Kenny into this conversation. Okay. One of the things that I've been really enjoying about the almost cult comedy uh, of uh, Canada's Letter Kenny is that we are presented with absolute certainty in our characters. Mm-hmm. Even the ones who are doing things that they have to then change, there is a, a certain sense of all of them knowing exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. And I have recently felt like I have no idea who I am or why I am. And uh, part of that reason, I think you might be able to hear in the background, my children yelling and running up and down the stairs. Uh, I'm not going to edit the, it out at all. I just want everybody to know. Oh, the if kids anybody are, listened to the Kate Bush episode, they heard those kids. Yeah, the kids are in the picture. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the uh, I cut out your dogs, though, I think. Thank I think you. I got the dogs out. Thank you. <laughs> um, what the hell was I saying before my children distracted me? Oh, I don't know who I am anymore, Chris. That's what I was saying. Right. Right. And, uh, and the idea of being a person who from an early age established a value system and followed it to some kind of success. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. success. Like I got all this money or, you know, I got uh, a partner who is, who, who is desirable. Um, but more like some kind of completion, some kind of certainty of a code or certainty of a, there's a line that's repeated in letter. Kenny, if a friend asks for help, you help him. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the sort of stereotypical, um, uh, gender genderedness of that, uh, you help him aside the idea that there's some folks who trust in the simple beliefs that they have. Yeah. And can apply them in such a way that they are self-actualized, like most of the characters in Letterkenny are, is really compelling to me. And they're just dudes who beat up, you know, other dudes if they look at them funny. So then let's uh, apply this to Heat then, right? Because this is a film where, again, like the characters on on either side of the, the challenge are unabashedly sure of themselves. They know who they are and they have no... Uh, apologies for it and subsequently ruin people's lives. The reason I brought up the fights that are central to Letterkenny is that I assume that that's more realistic, especially in the wake of you talking about your upbringing in New Hampshire and the the folks who make Letterkenny saying specifically like, hey, this is what... The fights I grew up with were more like Letterkenny. Yeah. Yeah. When you up the stakes... Of, you know, a man must have a code mm-hmm. like Omar and the wire, or you got to be able to, what is it? You got to be able to leave in 30 seconds, no matter what, if the heat's on. These codes that are taken to a point of people die or or don't die because of the code, there is a vicarious excitement, you know, almost at the edge of uh, like, like um, unspoken, inarticulate uh, excitement. Yeah. Like roller coaster excitement. So then I think what this brings us to is like you and I have two sort of competing views for why we watch crime fiction or read it, whatever, consume it, um, or why other people might. And yours is that, which is like this vicarious sort of adrenaline rush. You call it the roller coaster. 
yeah. of experiencing the the tension and release of like the robbery, the the chase, all that stuff. And for me, I feel like crime fiction. I I haven't been able to put my finger on this yet, Charlie. I wish I could, but I feel like really well done crime fiction is able to articulate things about our culture that we aren't normally willing to talk about because of social norms do you mean the uh the fantasy of the frontier the belief in rugged individualism it could be that it could be other things it depends on it depends on the content right and uh, i i think like you know some of the best crime fiction uh you know we were just talking about the serial podcast i think that's one that does that or uh, the other the follow-up s-town S-Town was really good. It, it made me not think about the the criminal actions of the people, but about the larger, you know, sort of wicked problems around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it said about our society. Um, In Cold Blood, I think, does that. Now, I think there's a difference between something like In Cold Blood and Heat or, or Elmore Leonard's um, better novels, which is that, like, In Cold Blood is certainly a an attempt to figure out, like, why did these... Why did these people kill somebody? Why did these people go, you know, to the farthest end? Yeah. Right. As opposed to, wow, the the children really are losing their fucking mind. I will be right back, Chris. <laughs> Chris, I'm going to do something that's uh, different than normal. I I don't remember what I was saying before that moment that my children demolished my uh, my frame of thought, my flow. We were discussing, Charlie, uh, what people get out of crime fiction. Okay. We were talking about those two polar opposites. And I think yeah. I gave the example of In Cold Blood. And you were talking about why In Cold Blood is not like heat. Okay, good. Partly what I want to do here is I, uh, since we're almost done with the run of Super Context, mm-hmm. I feel a little more comfortable sort of showing the, the seams, showing the, the edit points. Oh, yeah, it's, sure. It's kind of enjoyable. Yeah. Um, okay, so In Cold Blood was about how people could do something awful, whereas some crime fiction, which is stylistic and, and kind of enjoyable to read, is mm-hmm. about what might it mean to be free. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and ironically, that, okay. the, the, the next to last thing that we're going to cover on this show <laughs> is also crime yeah. fiction. And... Is a one very of those special ex- kind of crime fiction. Yeah, and it's an example of what I'm talking about. Um, it does a really good job of using, uh, fictionalizing an incident of real life crime, and using it to highlight uh, problems in the larger structures around that society. Yeah, and I think Heat had a little bit of that. I think it does, and that's why one of the reasons why I've liked it for so long. Not just because people scream silly stuff at each other in this movie but because like i felt like there was more to it other than the cops and robbers aspect yeah there did seem to be something that was more universally applicable in the choices that everyone was making now let me turn the tables and now in retrospect right those choices appear to all be bad right isn't that the trouble yeah i think so um so a joke between my wife and i for the last 15 some odd years is your penis i will say heat you want to watch heat this weekend and she'll say i've never seen heat and every time i go really and then another five years will pass 
and we'll have the same interaction. And every Has time she seen Heat, is that why she's never seen it? No, and she's just not gonna. Well, that's where we came to this weekend. Was I said I got to watch Heat for the show? I got to watch the director's cut. I'm warning you, this is like a three-hour movie. Uh, I like it a lot, but I don't know if it's your thing. And she said, okay. And and I said, it's it's a real good movie, but you might not be into it. And she said, let's watch the trailer. Okay. <laughs> we put on the trailer and she was like, yeah, hard out. I, yeah, I, don't I watched watch the this. trailer recently. It, it doesn't really seem to be about the movie that I like. No, no it's a terrible trailer. Um, and really evident, like of how bad nineties trailers were at selling you a thing. Um, hey, I, Chris, I would like you to please back the fuck off a nineties media artifact. Okay. <laughs> oh, let's, we're going to get there, buddy, as to why this is so important to you. But, uh, yeah. Um, she was just like, yeah, I don't understand why I would want to watch that. That's just, that's just for bros to sit around and get off on other bros posturing and saying mean things to each other. And I was like, you're not wrong. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. Recent, recently, we had a patron, patreon.com slash super context. Recently, we had a patron wonder why I had a problem with Tove Jansen's pet monkey. Do you Did remember we? this? <laughs> no, oh, yeah. I don't remember yeah. this. Go Someone ahead said, what does Charlie remind... have against monkeys? Oh, and, yeah, I do uh, remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in doing some quick research into how to sort of enjoyably engage that, as opposed to just saying, like, I, I don't know, it just seems like a bad idea to have monkeys in the house. Hmm. And I found that old Dane Cook bit about Dane Cook, heists. the wisdom yeah. of the shaman. Yeah, yeah. Hang, hang in, man, because <laughs> all of the broness of everything is going to come together. Yeah. There's an old Dane Cook bit about every guy in here wants to be part of a heist and every guy in here wants to own a monkey. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And as soon as you say you want to own a monkey, somebody will say, some monkey expert will suddenly appear and say, you know, it's a really bad idea. They throw their feces all over the place. And and so I said, I am the quote unquote monkey expert in this bit and you are Dane Cook. And uh, and luckily the patron did not take offense at that. <laughs> but part of uh, that bit is the whole every guy in here, the audience he means, would love to be part of a heist Mm-hmm. I want to be the guy who yells, get in the van, right? And it was a reminder yeah. of that kind of idolization of bank robbers, idolization yeah. of people who were performing finely orchestrated, uber-competent criminal activities. Yeah, one of the things that made me think about this was watching this movie and remembering how important of a cultural icon Al Pacino is. When I still lived in Atlanta, I would say on a daily basis, I saw kids on the train wearing shirts with Scarface on them or Carlito's Way on them um, as like signifiers of like, this is the lifestyle that I aspire to. This is my role model. This fictional character. Yeah. And and of course, he dies in both of those. I mean, right. So I think that's part of the game, of course. And like, we're not going to solve we're not going to solve that particular cultural institution right now. I have no interest in solving that. But one. It's, I think, it's I think the textbook right? is far too big. Yeah. It, and it, it connects to this, though. Right. The idea that um, that we watch these things because it's an adrenaline rush, but it also like it makes us feel like, oh, I could be like that. I could have more control over my life. Yeah. 
I could simplify my life so that the only thing that matters is the 10 minutes, you know, of the heist. Yeah. Um, there's this video game that I used to play with a couple friends of mine on Xbox called Payday. And the whole game is based on this movie. It is, nice. it is literally just like you and four other friends get together, plan a heist. There's like five different things you can hit in the game. And you go in and you almost verbatim reenact the scenes in this movie with the drills, yeah. with the masks, with the ways in which you choose to like well, zip tie security you, guards. If someone put together a first person shooter that was meant for four people, that was the uh, the wrecking ball scene from the bank down to the end of the road yeah. with the guns and all that. Um, no, I that's what this is. Yeah, I would. But I mean, if that was just like that was the whole point of it. This mm-hmm. is the game. I would buy that. And it's. Um, f- uh, platform immediately to try it out. You should get it, man. That's it. That is what well, no, it, it is. Sounds, no, if you got to do the drill too, I, I just want the. I just want the. You get to load the shootout the, the over bags and over in, and the over money again. <laughs> it's down to all of that stuff, and uh, you know it's pretty hard to escape the police. Like that's yeah. <laughs> that's the point of the game. Like you're supposed to get in and get out without killing a certain number of victims. And getting away from the police. And it is, uh, it's not easy. But it's like, it's its replicating the same thing that this movie replicates. Yeah. Okay, we have broed it up. We have gotten our dude on. I think let's try to now uh, rein it in and make something out of this particular Super Context episode about the film Heat, the 1995 movie written, produced, and directed by Michael Mann. So Michael Mann. Miami Vice yeah. and Vegas and Crime Story and Collateral and The Insider and Ali and, oh, and Black Hat. You're saying all of those names. And I, I honestly think that there is an entire generation that isn't all that familiar with him. That I'm doesn't sure. Know him, I'm sure that's That true. hasn't seen most of those movies. Uh, I think you just missed Last of the Mohicans, didn't you? Never saw it. Yeah, but that's the one that he like got awards for. Yeah, that's a, that's the big Why deal. Why didn't you I, see that one? I don't know. I I don't think I uh, because you I don't think I was get into a period, roller coaster rush off of it. Yeah, I don't think I was into period dramas at the time that that came out. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Like this is a this is a guy who's really well respected, but he's primarily known for making crime fiction films and and or television. Yeah. Um, but in an artful way. Yeah. His style is quite remarkable, Uh, especially looking at movies like Ali or the insider, which have these enormous close-ups with, with huge landscapes in the background and, and, Mm. you know, very gosh, I, I am going to get into some real, like abstract, um, appreciation of, film stuff that I don't really understand if I go too far down this road. So I'll just say Michael Mann is a stylist and clearly has some concerns that are particular that he has been working on through most of his career. Yeah. So there's a long story behind the origin of this movie, which I wasn't aware of until we did the research. And it starts with a TV show that he tried to have made the, the, I think the origin of this goes back like maybe 15 years before the actual movie ever came out. 
But when the movie itself was going to go into production, he did not want to direct it. He was going to write and produce it, but he wanted Walter Hill to direct it. Walter Hill directed 48 Hours, The Driver, The Warriors, um, and that guy turned it down. He was like, no, no thanks. Um, which so scene Michael Mann heat, ended up. Yeah, which scene in Heat do you think Walter Hill would have dropped someone through a skylight? Uh, you know, hopefully it would be the scene between De Niro and Edie when they're making out. <laughs> uh, so Michael Mann actually uh, had been friends with Walter Hill, he says, since 1972, that they were sort of a tight-knit group of Hollywood creators. And Michael Mann came up in Hollywood as a writer for um, Police Story and a couple other, like, crime television shows. Yeah. Long before he uh, co-created Miami Vice, long before he co-created Crime Story or worked on, um, gosh, I, I want to say Vegas again, but I know I already mentioned that. There's one more that I keep forgetting. Anyway, he was a writer. That was his prime, you know, uh, creative output for a long time. So he had directed movies already by the time he got to Heat. I don't know why he would have wanted to pass it off it's kind of interesting not sure either other than what we're about to reveal so there, there's a two-point origin story to this the first is that michael mann knew two real-life human beings that he based the characters in this movie on one is a guy named neil mccauley who the character neil mccauley is based on the, that's the robert de niro character the other is a detective former detective named chuck adamson who the uh vincent hannah slash al pacino character is based on hey chris what is the movie heat about not the story but what's the movie about uh it is about toxic men on either side of the law <laughs> destroying the relationships around them uh whether those be with women or children yes and the story that that's attached to is uh neil mccauley is a uh, leader of a bank robbery crew who is being chased by the cop, Vincent Hanna, Lieutenant Hanna, I think. I can't remember his rank. And uh, as we watch them both maneuver around each other, we get um, treated to the thesis that they are more alike than they are different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, and you see this play out in their crews, right? That the the... Um, character actors who all play the cops that work underneath Al Pacino. They and, totally could have been the heist guys. And yeah, the heist they're guys could almost have been the interchangeable. Yeah. Um, and so the, yeah, you get this 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 view that like, hey, these guys aren't so different. It's just the way that our society defines the law that makes them different. Okay, so Neil McCauley and Chuck Adamson are the sort of real life inspirations for these two characters. They are um, guys from the 60s, right? Uh, Macaulay uh, was in jail and uh, chased after by Adamson in the early 60s. And he died in 1964 during a robbery where he was sort of stumbled upon. No, I'm getting these two stories mixed up, aren't I? So he was taken down by cops in a robbery gone wrong. Mm-hmm. in early 1964. And I believe Adamson was a was part of the team of cops that took him down. Because he was chasing him so much uh, to the point that uh, 
the scene in Heat that is like the big deal for everybody is that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro acted in the same scene across the table from each other. They'd never done that before. It was a huge deal. And it was actually inspired by an actual meeting between the real cop and the real criminal. Yeah. Um, in what, like someone had their dry cleaning and they ran into each other. Uh, so there's a ton of heat that is based on true events, but not even enough to get that credit on the mm. screenplay. Yeah, so I don't really want to go too deep down into the like which ones are which and how what they actually did versus what they do in the movie. But this is where Mann got the idea from. Mann knew Adamson. He was his technical advisor on the movie Thief. Uh, and they got to be friendly. Mann, it sounds like, is very research-oriented when it comes to these crime movies. He goes into prisons and he knows people in prisons and, and basically asks them their take on things when he's developing the criminal characters on and I his think, side. I think that he's done enough um, projects that he's not doing research for a specific project so much as he is um, really interested in that particular world of, yeah. of criminals and mm-hmm. and cops and so he's kind of always researching those relationships and those stories so that's that is the like meat and bones origin story for this however man went on and wrote this not as this movie heat but as a canceled tv series and they shot a movie length pilot for this the show that was going to be called la takedown and it came out in 1989. My understanding is you can watch some of it on YouTube, but I don't think all of it is up there. Is this a? It, it's not a rentable thing, is it, Charlie? Um, I've never been able to track it down. Okay, um, but if you go digging, you can find scenes of it online. L.A. Takedown is, in a lot of ways, the prototype for Heat. Scene by scene, character by character, they're pretty much the same thing. Yeah, and this was six years before um, Heat came out. Mm-hmm. It was a not exactly canceled series. It was a, an unpicked up pilot. It was an attempt at a series that never happened. So they shot this in 19 days. And when you compare it to how Heat was produced, Heat had a 107-day schedule. And the budgets were astronomically different. So this was like a dry run in a lot of ways for Heat. And he had, he had not only... Uh, a, a pre-existing story to hang this all on, but he actually had gone out and done the work and made a thing that hung on this story and realized what worked and didn't work. So then he could go to another company, in this case, the, the producers of the movie, and say, hey, I can make this for X amount of dollars. I know how to make it return. I know how to cast this thing exactly. Yeah, and most of the extra material in the film version, Heat, is... Uh, the life behind these cops and these criminals Yeah. where the movie, the LA takedown movie is mostly like, you know, here's how exciting uh, a bank robber being chased by a cop can be. He had a sort of completed story and had all these people sort of showing how they were interacting with, yeah. uh, <laughs> as the review says, wives, girlfriends, daughters, and stepdaughters, because all of the characters are men in this mm-hmm. movie that we follow in their work and we only see the women when they encounter 
these various dudes. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the representation section of the episode because I have opinions. Um, but I think it's interesting that not only did he take stuff from L.A. Takedown for this, but apparently there were other beats and scenes that were a part of the first season of Crime Story that he also reappropriated for Heat. So this was like, this was an interesting way to make like a big blockbuster movie is like take pieces from his entire career and just make them bigger and better. Yeah, it feels a lot like someone doing an album, you know, after getting big and using, you know, like redoing songs from early EPs or mm-hmm. like working on ideas that they started to try and play with. Yeah, he is Michael Mann's greatest hits. Yeah. And it's and it's this is something that people talk about in the research, but they basically say, like, he isn't the movie that uh, he's he's necessarily associated with the most because it's not the one that won awards. But he is the one that most people think of as like the Michael Manniest of Michael Mann films. (laughs) So here's how Michael Mann describes the sort of move from L.A. Takedown to Heat. Nobody had paid much attention to the pilot. I'd written the screenplay years prior, and it never had the ending. And I had everything leading up to the ending. The screenplay was about 160 pages long. I took part of it and then did it as this movie. I owned the pilot. I raised the financing because I wanted to control it. Because if I wanted to make it a film, I didn't want to have to then go to somebody for the rights. So that's pretty fascinating. Here's a guy who'd been working in Hollywood for like 20 years. Yeah. And done some movies already, done a bunch of TV already, had been a writer and a producer and a director. And when he was working on this story that was his greatest hits, Mm. all of the things that he really enjoyed about um, the stories he'd heard about this uh, cop and and bank robber, you know, uh, cat and mouse long term chase thing. He made sure that he could hang on to it. Yeah. And that he wouldn't have to buy the rights back. Almost like he knew what he was going to have to do later. Another thing about this movie that is somewhat legendary uh, is that the big bank high sequence was meticulously shot. Like they spent a long time on it there. We'll get into production notes, but we won't, I don't want to go too far down the technical details, but like, yeah, we're not going to do a director's commentary here yeah. and we're not going to do trivia, but I do want to say this about the bank heist scene what happens is that the criminals go to rob a bank. Everything is very carefully orchestrated. They know exactly what to do. They've got inside information, the whole thing. And because of a sort of chance encounter with another chance encounter, someone tips off the cops that this bank is being taken down right now. Yeah. And so the LA robbery homicide squad rushes to the bank and they meet in the street just as the robbers are coming out. And then we see the bank robbers attempt to get away. And it is extraordinary. Yeah, it is. It's it's shot in an incredible way. Uh, it, it's the kind of thing they teach in classrooms. And I, I think it's fair to say that like a number of big movies have stolen or been in quote inspired by it. I, I have been chasing that Chris, scene for years. I yeah. want to see it again in another movie. I'm like, well, I, I would love go for watch someone the to Dark steal Knight. it. Well, I mean, maybe a little <laughs> bit, but just like the, you know, a scene of these guys uh, in military style yeah. moving from 
you know, the front of a bank down towards the row of police cars that are supposed to contain them and just shooting the shit out of everything. So it's intense. One of the reasons why they were able to do it so well is because they actually conducted a dry run with the real actors on a real bank, which sounds fucking crazy to me. I don't know why they could. The The line is that only the bank manager knew what was really going on, which yeah. I think has to be bullshit because you would have to tell guys with live ammo in their pistols, yes. don't, don't shoot these robbers. Or what even if, if there was a the customer who was armed? Oh, God. Well, how yeah. would that keep those guys from getting killed, right? So... But uh, the the legend goes that they they told this bank manager and that Robert De Niro, Tom Sizemore, and Val Kilmer actually robbed a bank, and then we're like, ha ha, we're just practicing for a movie. Here's the money back. Yeah, Michael Mann is known for sending his actors to um, like gun school. If they're mm-hmm. going to be a person who handles guns in the movie, they go through the kind of training that uh, a military or law enforcement. Yeah. Um, uh, go through in order to you know, clear a room, uh, you know, shoot multiple targets, make their way, you know, reload the whole thing. The other thing about the high sequence that is of interest is that, uh, you know, we've talked before in filmmaking, filmmakers use storyboards, which are usually illustrated. He actually shot photographic storyboards. He got all the actors down to the location and shot this on camera still by still by still so they could line it all up ahead of time and say this is what we want to get when we shoot it with film um and that's again like that's a lot of preparation it shows in the scene the scene is incredibly well done um i want to come back to that later though because i think he spent a ton of time (laughs) on this 10 15 minute action sequence and not a lot of time on the relationships okay here's a question and an answer from an interview Um, that I feel like sets us up for what you want to talk about. Yeah. The question is, uh, in previous interviews, you've cited Soviet filmmaker Ziga Vertov as an influence. Uh, Vertov promoted a theory of cinema that goes beyond the human way of looking at things and into a mechanical or perhaps superhuman view of events. And there's a little more, but then Michael Mann responds, I was fascinated with a couple of things. One is human life in all of its dimensionality. That's restricted, of course, in a drama like Heat, but it's a lot more dimensional than archetypes. I'm not really interested in archetypes. In my research, I met a lot of people who do what my characters are going to do, and the dimensionality is always stunning. It's always fascinating. It defines who they are. I believe them as people, and that allows me as a writer-director to access them with more intensity. And then, of course, when you're making a film in which worlds collide, you want the best collision possible. Chris, that is, to me, gobbledygook. And I love Michael Mann and his movies. So I don't quite know so you're not what he's to trying parse. to say. Beyond the idea that what I'm getting from this is that he is not looking for the kind of story that we're, we expect people to look for. I think that he probably is, that's true, yeah. But here's, here's why I think it's interesting. My takeaway from that is he's saying... I feel like this story is character driven, not plot driven. And uh, so character is my focus. And I can see that. And and you could argue, yes, that's why there's the 70 minutes exploring what their family lives are like. Um, But the resolution of all of that doesn't feel organic or character driven. 
Yeah. And, and he says it multiple times in here. He says this whole movie was built working backwards from the idea of the last shot in the movie, which is out spoilers. Al Pacino shoots and kills Robert De Niro and holds his hand as he's dying. Can I confess to you? I hate the ending of heat. <laughs> really? I wish that all of that stuff about the chase and the running through the airport and all of that, I wish all of it had been condensed into just a draw down oh, yeah? in the parking lot. Yeah. And if we needed, you know, Neil McCauley to be killed by Hannah because of something like if he would look at Edie and that's how Hannah gets the drop or whatever, I just find the whole long dragged out chase at the very end to be too much. It's funny because it's, it's a, it's in a way a reenactment of the bank heist scene. It's just between two people instead of like 10 people. Yeah. Um, but it's very quiet compared to the, yeah. And, and it's, it's another like pretty well shot and like calculated choreographed thing, you know, like the whole like angle of where they're standing and how shadows fall yeah. and et cetera. Yeah. It's so thorough. And, but I think that one of the, one of the weird things about it is that, I love this movie and I still have parts of it that I feel like are too much or overdone. Well, guess what, buddy? You're in luck because it sounds like they're going to make a prequel and a sequel. So God, we'll I, I get want to nothing that to do with any of that. I got to admit, <laughs> I saw uh, the Irishman. I definitely do not want to see those two fucking guys try <laughs> any of that again. Um, they go on in this interview with Michael Mann and they mentioned that apparently Amy Brenneman, who played the character Edie in the film, said that she uh, she was unsure about being in it because she was she felt like the film itself, not the character, the film itself was not guided by morals. And Michael Mann's response to her was, I think that's why you're perfect for the part. Because you have that instinctive objection, which is, and this is essentially, essentially her problem in the last 15 minutes of the movie, which is like, she thinks she's fallen in love with this guy. She finds out that he's a murderer and that he wants her to spend the rest of their life together. And she's like, uh, no, like I have moral objections to who you are as a human being. Yeah. And this is where Michael Mann in the interview gets a chance to kind of lay out a really big picture, that sort of superhuman view of events, yeah. you know, uh, idea. He says, I don't think much of the world runs moralistically. That's not to say characters don't have a moral compass. Uh, he, I think is approaching this as I'm trying to portray something. Yeah. And I don't think that the world has morals that right. are embodied in sort of what happens to people. I think the people have morals but the movie itself was never going to say, oh, and look, look how bad this guy is. Oh, and look, look how good this person is. And look, look how fucked up this situation is. It was just yeah. going to present it to us in the most exciting and compelling way possible. Yeah, I, I, I'm confused by that statement from him as well, because I think morality and ethics certainly play a part in this movie. Uh, and are important to all of the characters. They're all struggling with moral decisions. But um, I think what he's responding to there is this sort of two-dimensional idea of like a white hat versus a black hat. Yeah, I mean, I, I what I took from that quote was that 
Michael Mann doesn't feel like when someone acts immorally that the world becomes somehow out of joint and needs to reset itself. Hmm. Okay. Like, I, I think that he imagines that people feel that way. I wonder how he's feeling right now during a COVID-19 pandemic 2020. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, do you feel like, oh, um, the world, the, the universe will fix itself? It's, it's more like, no, we've got to do our own thing. Mm. I think, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know. Uh, but he, he has been talking to people who have immoral codes yeah. for a long time. Like yeah, he's gone a- to prisons and talked to uh, people who are in prison about how they got there and also how they handle what's going on in prison. And there's a certain nihilism, I think, that goes along with with that view getting injected into a film like this. Um, And he talks about how he brought the actors together with those folks as well. They would have social gatherings between uh, the characters who played cops with real cops and the actors who were playing criminals with real criminals. And that way the actors could sort of like get down, not just like the character as it's written down on the page, but the idea of like, how these people actually hold themselves body language wise. Yeah. I think he also wanted the actors to take on some of what he thinks of as the existential, um, understanding that criminals have, uh, when they are like when they're in prison, he talks about, uh, going to, uh, Folsom and -hmm. trying to figure out, you know, what, what can I get from this? What can I, what can I learn from talking to these folks? And he says that, this prison is a very dangerous place, but ordered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, if there was a killing among prisoners, it was not because someone couldn't do time and freaked out. It was because someone had violated something known like a drug deal or cross gang boundaries. Cause and effect was knowable in Folsom. So he is imagining that in an amoral world or a world that does not operate moralistically. Yeah. The code, the moral code that someone takes on can possibly come from this weird, like horrible, dangerous place, but still be an established coherent code. He also points out that he has these like long running relationships with people in Folsom. Uh, He's consulted them for other movies. And he says, there's folks that I know there who are literate in a way that you would think that they're a lit professor, you know, the way in which they talk about Kierkegaard or Sartre or Marx or Engels, they're well-read. They know all these things, but they're not, they haven't gone to school for it. It's just, this is what they're doing in prison is reading these books. Yeah. And I think he throws the, um, the cops in his movie up against these, uh, you know, not all of them. I think uh, the character played by Tom Sizemore, you would not confuse with an educated person. <laughs> But Neil Macaulay is a very contained, um, yeah. careful, sort of almost academic kind of personality. Well, he meets you know, the, this girl in a Barnes and Noble, basically. Yeah. And then he's up against Al Pacino in full kind of ridiculous mode yeah. to the point where the backstory that uh, the director and Al Pacino had is Hannah's a cokehead. Yeah. So I want to pause and talk about this for a minute because a, a lot of people's takeaway from Heat is just... Wow, Al Pacino's so cool. He'll scream and yell at anybody who gets in his way, and he's just such a wild card. And this is like the most Al Pacino of Al Pacino movies, maybe other than Scent of a Woman, where he's just like, you know, the Bill Hader impersonation of Al Pacino. That's what he's exemplifying in this film. Um, And when I watched it the first time, 
I remember thinking to myself like, oh, this guy's kind of a crooked cop and he's probably doing coke or something else. Yeah. Because he's really crazy. Like he's not. He totally was. Yeah. So it turns out they had originally written into the script that he was a coke head. And that was why he had these outbursts all the time. And then they essentially got Al Pacino and were like, uh, it's Al Pacino. We don't really need to explain why he's crazy. It's just Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, he said um, it, it became Michael Mann said that to make it explicit. Oh, yeah. Look, he's doing coke. Would yeah. Be too literal an explanation. It would be too like uh, uh, plot theory 101. I mean, I just assumed that it was like something we were supposed to implicitly understand between the lines, that this was not a traditional by the book cop and that the the way that he kept going was basically by using uppers all the time. Yeah. I mean, I remember my understanding of Al Pacino uh, in 1995 was that he was fantastic in those movies around the Godfather, you know, mm. and that something about when he got scent of a woman and was able to really be like a, a hammy, you know, big actor on screen that that became his sort of, okay, this is how I'm going to do things. Yeah. And so his kind of performance was always a little bit of a bummer in this movie. But now looking at this, Oh, he was sort of supposed to lean into that. Yeah. I think that was his understanding of, of the character. Um, there's also a lot of talk about how, and this is kind of weirdly gross to me, but also works in the technical department for this film. The gunfire sounds really realistic. And so they asked Michael Mann, like, how did you do that? How did you get it to be so distinctive? And he was like, yeah, we, we used real guns with real gunpowder. Yeah. So the original idea was that there'd be a sort of sound design for this big shootout. The one in front of the bank that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, Michael Mann said, I had a sound design of edited sound effects that was very elaborate for all the gunfire. He says it would have taken five days to mix. But when they did the scene, what he expected to kind of cut over, they used full load blanks, you know, uh, bullets that just had their um, their shot pulled out, not the not uh, not the effect diminished at all. And he said those sounds that they got were better than anything that he could have come up with in the mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think there's any shootout that I can think of that has the same kind of, ah, no, it's triggering, especially, uh, you and I both saw this in the theater when it first came out. Um, God damn. Yeah. And, uh, I, I remember just like, yeah, the, the, the sounds of the, of the gunfire, like crawling up my spine, you know, just like utterly freaking me out. Um, so yeah, it's like a really te- technically proficient film. Um, he also talks about, I mean, the, the big idea here, and this was the marketing hook, clearly like the production company was like, this is how we're going to make a lot of money. Al Pacino and Robert De Niro have been in all of these big crime movies, but they've never been in one together where they're acting together in a scene. And this is the hook. We're going to get people to come because it's like this moment in Hollywood history. Um, and Michael Mann said, yeah, it was challenging because we had to put these two protagonists on a collision course and have them be antagonists to each other at the same time. So he was like, you know, this was a tiring movie to work on, but at the same time he felt 
working with all these actors as an ensemble worked really well. He said things like Val Kilmer would come by on his day off just so he could watch how yeah. how De Niro and Pacino worked. It's really um, interesting to think like the the counterfactual here. Mm-hmm. What if De Niro and Pacino did not both have the histories? Mm-hmm. You know, what if actors as quality as those two in these roles had performed them, but they weren't? It didn't have that hook. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know that I would have gone to see it in the theater because yeah, I do but... know that what got me there was oh holy shit, De Niro and Pacino. Really. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can feel free to fight me on this, but um, I like both of them in this movie. They do a good job, but I don't think either of them are particularly being great at acting. They're being great at performing themselves. Oh, they're great movie stars. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder, what if they had been good actors? (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, what if they, it would have and, been a different experience? And this is not to say that they are poor performers or mm-hmm. that they are bad actors, but there's almost too much De Niro and Pacino to it. You know, yeah. and I think that's also part of why he had to have um, these really careful set pieces and a big ensemble behind each of them. Such a strong character. Yeah. Group. I mean, the we'll get to this in the cast, but the the folks working around them were top level character actors. I mean, people now that we're going to look back on history, Wes Studi, Ted Levine, um, Tom Noonan, just these like incredibly strong actors who only get a couple speaking lines, but they're like, they're, they're the supporting structure around these two, like supposed Titans coming up against each other. Yeah. And it keeps it from becoming too much of a, Oh, Hey, this, Oh, you know what? Keeps it from becoming a righteous kill or righteous kill. I don't know if you Which saw I've, that. Ever. I never saw that. No, I yeah. heard it. I heard it was not good. It's not good. And I think a big part of it is because it feels like, oh, hey, we got De Niro and Pacino. Let's let them be De Niro and Pacino. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the actors confirm a lot of the experiences here. De Niro talks about how he went to Folsom prison. And one of the guys uh, there like knew Michael Mann from like... 20 years before this and recognize them. And they talked about how like, this is part of the experience of being in prison that like time condenses and collapse. And so something that may be 15, 20 years apart to you only seems like a couple days because you've just been in the same location. They said that there's a, you know, in a month, there's only what three eventful days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and those are the ones you remember, but everything else is just stacking time. Um, and Michael Mann, this is where he specifically comments on the thing I was mentioning. He says the entire movie is a dialectic working backwards from the last moment in the film, the death of the thief, while the detective who has just taken his life stands with him as he passes. And he describes a scene as like choreography. Like the Mm -hmm. whole thing was just, was a dance or was movement that was supposed to compel and explain compel yeah. the audience and explain the relationship and that's a big part of all of michael mann's sort of production is that he he wants everybody to move and feel the way that the quote-unquote real folks move and feel yeah right so like there's a degree for him that's important a degree of authenticity that's important for him um but then there's also a degree of movement and choreography that's important that is clearly not authentic that is not how real people would do things 
I'm going to compare it back again to Den of Thieves, which is, um, you know, a recent heist movie, which felt like we were supposed to be excited by the things going on around the characters. Yeah. You know, and I haven't seen it, it, but I'm yeah. yeah, And and a fairly pedestrian kind of shooting uh, film shooting. I mean, whereas heat always feels like you're supposed to be excited by the film around these almost boringly authentic characters. Yeah, sure. There's very few cool moments. We don't really get a hero shot of anybody. When there is a shootout, like the bank shootout that is so awesome, it just cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts and tries to get this across. The one big, like, framed moment is when Hannah shoots um, uh, Churis. What was uh, Michael? Hmm, I cannot remember Tom Sizemore's character's name. It was just Michael Tom something. Yeah. 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 But, like, that's the big, like, careful, here's a shot, and then this is when he shoots him, instead mm-hmm. of um, what you get, like, big actorly close-ups of stars well, and other bank robbers. It's movies. also another scene that is framed in a way to, to, and this is part of my problem with the movie, especially saying that it doesn't have any moral, moral relevance. Um, <laughs> there's constant attempts to show that Al Pacino cares about other people in ways that Robert De Niro does not. And that's one of them, which is Tom Sizemore in the middle of this gunfight takes a little girl hostage and Al Pacino saves her, kills Tom Sizemore, and then immediately, like, his priority is to get the girl away and make sure that she's not traumatized and hold her tight. Do you remember the Mark Maron bit about the Rolling Stones in his uh, recent show? No. 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 So one of his lines in this is, uh, I think anybody who really loves Rolling Stones just kind of puts up with Mick Jagger. (laughs) And for me... Anybody who really loves the movie movie Heat just kind of puts up with Al Pacino. Mm, interesting. Is is kind of where that stands for me because his his big moments are some of the more ridiculous moments. Mm-hmm. Watching him comfort a woman whose son has just been killed. Yep. You know, it's yep. a little bit like, oh, that is not real. That is not what would happen. There's a lot of stuff in this movie with him that is a character work, um, but doesn't feel authentic. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get back to that. I, I don't want to diverge too much from from Michael Mann's notes here. The last bit of which is him saying that uh, he's asked by Entertainment Weekly, you know, if you shot this movie today, what would it look like? And he gives a, another kind of difficult, nonsensical answer. Hey, wait, let me frame this before you d- you do it, too. He then did this, right? Like, this was before the director's cut came out. And the director's cut is mostly color correction and timing. Yeah. There's really not a lot of cutting or additions to the director's cut. Yeah. He says, you know, uh, if, if I was going to shoot this differently today, well, you know, we'd make sure that there's emotion on a human's face and how much of the faces do you see? What constitutes fear? What constitutes apprehension? What constitutes suspicion? I've also evolved as the audience's perception has evolved and media evolves year to year. If I shot this two to three years ago, it would be less chromatic the sense of tension would become more pronounced with greater contrast and a kind of more blue and black palette than the film that I wanted it to be when I shot it in 94 and 95. Does that sound different than the actual movie? Like I watched I the director's remember. cut last night okay. and it's the first time I've watched the director's cut and I've probably seen the movie five or six times. Yeah. Uh, and I, I couldn't notice a single difference. 
what I remember of Heat, the movie, was that it was very blue and black, mm-hmm. very like muted, you know, very, uh, very dark. Like even the bright blue sky, you, you know, there were like these grays in the middle of the frame that yeah. were the people. Yeah. Like, I'm just sort of surprised that this is how he would describe. If I mean, this must now. be very minute stuff on incredibly precise instruments that are not like our home entertainment systems is yeah. all I can think of. Yeah. And this is Michael Mann's concern. He's this, yeah. he's a wild conundrum in that he is so deep in the frame and the colors and the look and yeah. the, you know, yeah. rehearsing the movements and making sure everything's authentic as possible. And also this sort of wild stylist of, the 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 thief and detective life mm, mm-hmm. um let's move on to the actors so al pacino uh justified why his character behaves the way he does and he says this i think the character is prone to explosive irrational outbursts a lot of those interrogations and that kind of thing are what i got from watching other detectives work they kind of go into this and they flip into a kind of flipomatic, as they say, <laughs> this state of general chaos in order to get something. And the hysteria they exhibit shakes up a subject and gets to the truth. So he's saying that this is like a, a strategy that Al Pacino's character uses in order to get what he wants in in um, communication situations, right? And, and Mann and Pacino clearly agreed because Michael Mann says... Uh, that Vincent Hanna will rock a person to his foundation to the point where that person loses whatever defense mechanisms they may have set up against this detective coming in. So my argument against that is I think that's very true in the scenes where he's encountering CIs and uh, they're interrogating prisoners. Um, But he does it with his wife and stepdaughter. He, He does it with people in his everyday life. He does it with his coworkers. Well, isn't that then the the statement of you get lost in this? You can, I guess, you can fail to be a good person yeah. uh, by applying uh, yourself to this work, this intense work, because yeah. it will follow back. I, I guess what I'm trying home. to make clear is I really don't think that uh, the Vincent Hanna character should be a role model to anybody. <laughs> no. Uh, and, and despite the fact that he's technically the good guy in this film, he's a very toxic person. And um, we'll get to more of that later. But his wife, they have a really interesting scene. They're talking about their pending divorce. And she says something like, um, you know, all we're left with is the mess that you leave behind when you're just this whirlwind that moves through our lives. Yeah. You know, it's it's becoming more and more clear as we go that uh, Michael Mann let the criminals be the most sort of contained and actualized characters. Mm. You know, they are the ones who have their shit together because, and this is something from The Wire, (laughs) if they screw up once, they get caught or they die. Yeah, I think there's even a line like that. You know, all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, And in fact, this is... Tom Sizemore plays Michael Chirito. I was forgetting his name before. And he's a he's a difficult nutbag, right? Tom Sizemore or the character? Tom, uh, well, both. But uh, <laughs> the character and Tom Sizemore. But originally, Michael Mann wanted Don Johnson to be yeah, Michael right. Chirito. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is Don Johnson 
coming out of Miami Vice. That's where Michael Mann worked with him. So it's almost like, oh, he really wanted the the bank robbers to be stylish, to be mm-hmm. um, good looking, to be uh, movie stars, television stars, to be really compelling. Like Val Kilmer, Don Johnson, and Robert De Niro. Yeah, That was supposed to be your... Yeah. Uh, robbery team. I'm actually glad that it was Tom Sizemore because I think Tom Sizemore is a little less sexy. He's a little yeah. more realistic. Um, and the other thing that blew my mind in these notes is that Don Johnson was basically considered to be backup if De Niro or Al Pacino dropped out. He would fill either <laughs> one of those roles. And uh, here's another weird casting bit. Uh, Keanu Reeves was going to be Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. And again, with the, you know, like the really good looking. Well, Point Break was yeah. big around that time, too. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, I can see uh, the way that they did Val Kilmer in this movie. I could totally see Keanu Reeves in that role. Um, I could not see Don Johnson in either of the leading roles in this. Don Johnson's having this weird renaissance right now. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you mean the world is having a renaissance and realizing how good Don Johnson He's is. He's in everything all of a sudden. It's quite odd. Yeah. Have you ever seen Dead Bang? No. I think you don't want to, but you ought to. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I might need a break from stuff like this after a while. Um, so I, I could gush about these character actors for days. A lot of my favorite folks are in this movie. I really like Wes Studi. I really like Ted Levine. Um, Tom Noonan. Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo, there's a conversation in here. This is one of the like... Um, moments where the sort of feature press was starting to get wind of Danny Trejo's actual background. And uh, they said, oh, if you want a guy to play a scary Mexican criminal, go directly to Danny Trejo because he's had practice. He's a former armed robber, heroin addict, and inmate of California's most infamous prisons. He actually spent time on death row. Uh, And they go through this whole thing and talk about why, you know, when you see him in these movies, it he seems so on point. He seems so yeah. realistic. Because when he was this 28... This is way before Machete. Yeah, yeah. When he was 28, he um, was given a chance. Like, they say it was a bizarre set of coincidences that the case fell apart, that he was, uh, you know, up for whatever. Yeah. But uh, he said, um, I did five years inside. They gave me five years parole. I finished it in two and a half of year, two half two and a half years. Woof. Can't talk. Uh, in 1972, I was 28. It was the first time I'd been off parole since I was 12, and I decided to reform. And so then he became an actor after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about the c- cast before we move on to talking about the soundtrack? Will you keep dodging William Fickner, Jeremy Piven, oh, Henry Rollins? Henry Rollins. I can't believe. <laughs> All right. Henry Rollins is in this movie, everybody. And this is 1995. This is prime Rollins band territory. He was on MTV doing music videos. And there is a scene in this movie where Al Pacino beats up Henry Rollins and throws him through a glass window. It is the most unrealistic thing in the whole movie. That is actually the scene where um, it is the clearest that there is a stunt double for Al Pacino. Yeah. It is amazing to watch that guy (laughs) run at Henry Rollins. Yeah. uh, Fickner's awesome. I love Fickner. And uh, again, like drawing the connection between this and the Dark Knight, like clearly 
when Nolan was putting together Dark Knight, he was thinking of this movie and thinking of the character actors in it and how to echo. Heat. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if I've ever seen the guy who plays Wayne grow again, and yeah. I'm sure I have. I just don't recognize him because there is this, there's a criminal who is the criminal to the criminals, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wayne grow is the, uh, the dude who there's a uh, subplot where Wayne grows a serial killer and like gets completely dropped. Yeah. Yeah. But he's just like, he's killing hookers. He, but he's the guy that they want, uh, that even the bank robbers want to get rid of. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, this movie tries to do a lot. Um, it, but it is, look, I, I, I sound like I'm complaining about this film a lot. I, I really like this movie. <laughs> yeah. But there's also a lot to complain about if you try to pull it apart. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is a lunatic movie with lunatic things that happen in it. Well, um, if I'm going to continue complaining, let's talk about the soundtrack. The okay. score. Um, so the score was done by Elliot Goldenthal and he says, Michael Mann and I were going for an atmospheric situation. It was the first time that I'd used what I call a guitar orchestra, where I use six or eight guitars, all playing with different tunings stacked on top of each other in a musical way in a mixed meter of percussion. This is one of those movies along with lethal weapon and other uh, action adventure crime films of the late eighties and nineties that uh, uses the wanky guitar solo as a way (laughs) to either signify uh, a romantic scene or a transition from one scene to the other. This is when the saxophone was replaced Mm -hmm. with the uh, Van Halen solo. Yeah, exactly. Huge solo, bending the notes as far as you can on the the neck of the guitar. Except, Chris, the buildup to those things is amazing. That sound, like the the sort of metronomic, you know, TikTok and and sort of atmospheric noise that leads you to the like the music that gets you into the bank, in the right. the high so, scene. So is it's amazing. interesting. Remember when we talked about the Dark Knight soundtrack and how they they kind of do a similar thing, but with you know they have the advantage of another fifteen years. Well, Nolan says that part of why he cast William Fickner was just to sort of reference Heat. In the in the bank robbery scene at the and beginning, and I think musically they were trying to do some similar stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm all for a wall of guitars. I just don't want my wall of guitars to be soloing constantly. If that makes <laughs> sense. Well, Goldenthal does say it was much closer to the European mentality of film scoring. Yeah. So, uh, but there were songs in this uh, movie from YouTube, Brian Eno, Moby, and Joy Division. I just rewatched it again yesterday, and I didn't catch any of those. Did you? Uh, no. Yeah. No, I never think of there being songs. In Maybe they movie. were over the credits. I'm not sure, but, eh. or they were playing on the radio in the background. So this is a movie that was produced by two production companies. The first was Michael Mann's. He had his own production company called Forward Pass. He still well, has it, I think. Michael Mann has been holding on to his rights. He yeah. learned early on not to, uh, not to have uh, people with pieces of the pie. The second is Regency Enterprises, which is an American entertainment company that was started in 1982 by Arnon Milchan. Uh, In the 90s, this company had a deal with WB when this movie was made, uh, and their offices were actually on the WB lot. Now, the the difference here, though, is like almost every single scene in Heat is shot on location. I think the only scene that's not shot on location 
is the scene I was referencing earlier, the E.D. De Niro makeout scene. They're in front of a green screen because they couldn't oh, get yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. the there was something about how they couldn't get the city skyline to look the way that Michael Mann wanted it to. Yeah, there's there's a number of green screens in Michael Mann films that are about getting the cityscape behind. I guess yeah. it's important to him. Um in 1997, Regency Enterprises ended that whole WB thing. That was after this film was made. Now they have a distribution packed with 20th Century Fox. But let's let's take a look. These are the other movies that this company produced in 1995. Boys on the Side, Under Siege 2, Free Willy 2, Empire Records, and Copycat. It just makes no sense. It's a little scattershot. Um but it's also very 90s. Empire Records is maybe the most 90s of 90s movies. Yeah, and four years later, Arnon uh, Milchin would be part of the team that produces Fight Club. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, we yeah, talk, he we, says. Th- well, that's it's the crescendo of the 90s, right? <laughs> Pretty <laughs> 1999. Yep. Uh, Warner Brothers handled the distribution because of the distribution deal they had. We have uh, talked casually back and forth about this director's cut. As far as I could tell, it wasn't a ton different. Uh, I never heard some of notes it. here. Yeah, it, like it, it's it called dropped the into definitive the, director's edition. Yeah, it just dropped into my sort of blank, my 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 missing years of media consumption. I think. Yeah, yeah. But as you said, it's 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 not necessarily that there's different scenes or edits as much as the the visual technical stuff has changed colorization contrast things that were more available to him with the technology yeah that we have now it 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 really does point up michael mann's kind of aesthetic that his director's cut was mostly about changing how shadow hits a face Mm -hmm. and uh and and doing digital changes of um like uh what did he say if i were shooting this two years ago there might have been more shadow on the actor's face more expressionistic lighting less chroma and so just like reducing the um effects that Mm -hmm. he put on it is Mm -hmm. how he was making a director's cut i think in a lot of ways he thinks about his films like moving paintings oh yeah for sure he's you know there's a shot during that last scene with uh, Pacino chasing De Niro through the airfield um, where there's it, the, the camera just hovers on Pacino very slowly moving behind one of these storage containers and the, the placement of the camera and the frame of exactly how Al Pacino is in profile and where his head is in relation to the rest of the frame is very clearly calculated to have a kind of balance and asymmetry to yeah. it. Okay, uh, before we do numbers, I mean, we got to get our get our plans together and figure out how we're going to get out of here without a driver, right? I think that's a good idea. We can always go pick up that guy. I know a grill man. Chris, how far do you want to go with this? Well, I have two more weeks far. How many? How, no, I meant this this actual spot right now. Like, how yeah. much are we going to explain that we're a Patreon-funded podcast? And even though we're about to end, if people are patrons for, uh, you know, the foreseeable future, we can keep the public uh, RSS feed up. Yeah, that seems good to me. I would just say, if you're listening to this right now, and you like this show, and you want other people to be able to listen to it and discover it, think about donating 
$1 a month to the Super Context Patreon so that we can keep the feed up and you can get one mini episode from Charlie and I a month as a reward. Yeah. I mean, if you want to call that a reward, it might just be something you have to live through. I mean, for some people, it's punishment. Yeah. Listen, the only thing that's important right now is to say that our Patreon community has been fantastic to us. They've been kind. They've been supportive. They've guided the show. They've changed it. um, They've become friends. And I am delighted that we've done it. Me too. So let's thank those people. And then we can move on to the last two episodes of Super Context. Holy shit. Thanks for getting us this far. Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, and Bing Bong Man. Thank you, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovenich, Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, Cliff Landis, Coco, Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, H.A. Eugene, Ira James Udiskin, James McDonnell, Jason Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, and John Pheasant. Thank you to Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Junta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvola, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, Luciano Fuck, Luigi Oswego, and Melinda Hale. Thank you to Miriam Meany, Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bowe, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, the podcast, Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, and Roman Marichuk. And thank you to Romantic Placebo, Ron Bilodeau, Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Thomas Tremberger, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan. Just remember, everybody, as long as we can afford it from the Patreon community, we will keep Super Context up and not running. But thank you for everything you have done so far. And we're back. How'd this movie do in the theater, Chris? Did pretty well. Uh, it has a $60 million budget. It made $67 million gross in the U.S., which doesn't sound like enough to compensate. But then it made another $187 total worldwide. $187 million, not $187. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like it made twice as much money overseas as it did domestically. Yeah, which, which is think, interesting, right? Yeah, it also goes to the whole style and the sort of... Um, if not vacuous, then superficial, compelling nature of these movie stars. I distinctly remember the night that I went to go see this movie. I remember the theater. I remember who I was with. Um, and what I remember was that this was thought of at the time as being kind of arty, <laughs> which is hilarious yeah. in retrospect. Uh, but... The other thing that was a big deal about this movie that people were talking about on the street was how long it was because we hadn't yet hit that point where blockbusters were three hours plus affairs. This movie had an intermission when I went to go see it. We had like a full 10 to 15 minutes in the middle of the movie where they stopped the film and were like, go buy snacks, go to the bathroom, go do your thing. And then you Gosh, can come back. I don't remember if there was an intermission or not. And my, the only thing I remember is my youngest brother jumping up and down in his seat 
during the bank shootout. Because he was excited about it? He was so excited. He could not hold himself still. He was like 13 years old. Mm. He had his hands on the armrest and his feet up on the seat, and he was just bouncing. That's kind of interesting. That's almost like a perfect metaphor for the way in which this film speaks to uh, young men. Yeah, it just goes straight for the puberty. Yeah. Um, So it opened in third place when it came out. It was behind Jumanji and Toy Story, which is kind of fascinating because... Here we are recording this 25 years later, and both of those are franchises that are still kicking around. Jumanji a little less so. There's been two of those new Jumanji movies. I think they do quite well. I haven't seen any of them, but... Oh my god, you're right. I totally forgot that The Rock was in in the reboot of Jumanji. I think those are some of the biggest movies around right now. (laughs) They, They probably are. Yeah. God... I can't believe I do a media podcast, Chris. I'm useless <laughs> at it. Um, it does pretty well in reviews. It gets an 86 on Rotten Tomatoes based on 80 reviews. On Metacritic, a little lower, 76 out of 100. That's based on 22 critics. Um, it's a movie. We've talked about this already. It's inspired a lot of people. Christopher Nolan's been pretty open about how much it inspired The Dark Knight. It also inspired Grand Theft Auto, uh, both Grand Theft Auto 3 and 5, which I don't know the difference between those, even though I've probably played them. Um, there was also a video game that was supposed to be based on Heat that was going to come out in 2006. And then it turned out that the company that announced it didn't actually have the license to Heat. They hadn't <laughs> acquired that from Michael Mann. Um, they interviewed the people at the production company and they're like, well, we're really passionate about making this game and we'd love to publish it, but we can't because we don't own it. (laughs) And also the, the movie heat has been the source of uh, a prequel novel, which is coming out, I think. And the idea of a sequel. And I will state again, I want nothing to do with either one of those pieces I, I i don't want to read a prequel novel and i definitely don't want to see a sequel with uh with anybody from the movie in it talk to me in five years when this stuff comes out i i i have a eerie suspicion that this is going to be one of those moments where charlie says this now but then he can't help himself when the actual thing is out in the world i believe you but i just want to say right now i'm not interested except i have always talked about you know how great it would be to have a sequel to Heat. You know, for like ten years, I wanted more. I just wanted more of that effect, that feeling. Uh-huh. But I definitely don't want to see a retread of it now. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, and this is sort of interesting. Michael Michael Mann seems to be aware of the um, the twenty year shelf life and how it's like time to reignite the franchise, basically. So he started a book company called Michael Mann Books. And one of the first books that's going to come out from this book company is this Heat prequel. Uh, It's going to cover the formative years of Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley and the Val Kilmer character. Why? Because they don't... Why would you have them in the same prequel novel? They don't interact with each other in any way until Heat. Well, it'll be like Godfather 2 just stories that that are clearly connected because you know what happens later okay um he says he's written two-thirds of it it's a prequel but it's also a sequel and they're rolled together he says it's everything before the movie and everything after the movie and he's imagines he's going to make a movie out of it too 
Yeah. Um, or a television series. He seems right. He's he's fluctuating between the two. Uh, he seems particularly interested in the idea of exploring Val Kilmer's character as a child or a young man and the idea that Val Kilmer gets away at the end of Heat. So I, I guess it would be Pacino going after Val Kilmer this time. I got to tell you, this is another sign of the weirdness of Heat that I love the movie. Um, I love watching it. I love thinking about watching it. And it kind of sounds cool, the idea of continuing any of that stuff. But then I also immediately think, oh, God, don't do that. Yeah, me too. Please don't do that. Yeah. It is also clear that Michael Mann is working on the same stuff all the time. And I don't mean like, oh, he's just doing the same thing over and over again. I mean that the, the world he's interested in, the concerns that he has are pretty narrow. Mm-hmm. How do yeah. criminals become criminals? What happens to cops when they chase criminals? Mm-hmm. That's his. That's where he's at. That's what he wants to work on. Which leads me to the title of a book that popped into my head while I was watching it, and I just wrote it down in the notes because I couldn't help myself. <laughs> tough, tough toys for tough, tough boys. That's a, a Will Self collection of short stories I read like 15, 20 years ago. Uh, that's what it felt like this movie was when I was rewatching it this time around. You know, it was just it is it is pretty obvious the way that it was kind of structured to be about masculinity and sort of faux reflective. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sean Burns said on WBUR, dudes love to talk about heat. I often joke that the film has been watched on more black leather couches in man caves than any other movie, except maybe The Godfather or Goodfellas. I don't think he's wrong, you know, and um, this gets into what we started with. You know, there's there's just this inherent kind of male ego thing going on with the film. And I think I think man with two ends, the director, I think is intention was to interrogate that but i think one of the problems with the film is he doesn't go far enough in interrogating it well so here's what he says that he is interested in anybody who has ambition and who is excited by trying to do something beyond the circumscribed self which sounds like code for i'm interested in in men who are really men well, he specifically says a heightened state of emotion and consciousness that you see in cops and boxers and passionate frontiersmen. I, I don't know if Michael Mann has ever said, uh, you know, if I found a story that had a woman at the center of it like this, I would definitely do it. Mm. Uh, he certainly hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's stop and talk about this for a minute, because I, I didn't uh, find any research that was really focused on the representation in this film. But the film is is supposed to be as much about Pacino and De Niro and Val Kilmer as it is about their wives or girlfriends. That is not true. I, they okay, certainly I, get way no, less. No, I'm going to push back on this, and not as a defense of the movie, but as a sort of no, no. It it is definitely misguided in how it is approaching these women, but not yeah. because it's supposed to be about them. It is supposed to be about all parts of these main characters lives, which includes sure, that's fair women who are. And, and I, I mean this sincerely 
the women who are encountering them or who are dependent on them or who are, um, uh, I don't know, capturing them, entrapping them, whatever. Like, it's a very male uh, view of how women affect a man mm-hmm. in his... Uh, and male, that, this is also not true. Let me see if I can get this right. This is like trying to thread a needle... And I don't like the thread and the needle is stuck in my flesh. So let's see. It's almost about how people interact. It's like trying to be about how men and women interact, but it it can't get past yeah. the male-centric idea. Well, there's also, you know, I mean, the basic idea is that when you kiss a girl, you hear guitar solos in your head. you're stuck on that that is as close to romance as this film gets i am stuck on um you know these guys are like laughing joking drinking and and they're just sort of like you know unable to do the things they're supposed to do if there's women around and then take the women out of the picture and they know what the fuck to do like it's it's this weird it's like a person saying oh god i love women I love a person, a guy saying, I love women. I love being around them. I love being close to them. They just make me feel something amazing. It's like, you don't love women, man. You You're just like almost verbatim just quoted Pacino in this movie. Like the way he talks to his wife, he almost says stuff like y- that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I just love you. There's just something when, when I'm yeah. around you, it brings out the beast in me, you know, yeah. like it, that, that shit. Um, or his, his whole, like, I love big, great asses line you know like um there's just something i don't know posturing again but also just like performing male virility rather than like actually showing it i guess yeah Um, and and performing well like you know frontiersmen gets at boxers cops and frontiersmen it's like you know cops kind of have to have a community to be part of to actually be what they are you know i i think the most important scene in the film for me and what i would have liked to have seen more of in this movie is um he leaves his wife at a cop dinner they're having a dinner that's parallel to the gang having a dinner showing again like look how exactly similar these yeah they're the same kind of person who go out the same kind of way but he takes off and he goes and investigates one of Wayne Grow's serial killer victims, which is never followed up on again. <laughs> um, and he, when he comes back, his wife is sitting there all by himself, and they have this heart-to-heart conversation about why their marriage isn't working. And she says that thing about, like, you live with the dead. The rest, what we get, it's just the mess that you leave behind when you go through our lives. And I mean, they didn't have the words for it in 1995, but she's, she's describing a toxic relationship with this guy, you know. And and I think the other scene that, that kind of gets close to this is after Natalie Portman attempts suicide, uh, they have this heart-to-heart again in the ER about whether they can make their marriage work. And he says, I'm not what you're looking for. I totally forgot that Natalie Portman was Diane Vernora and Al Pacino's daughter. Yeah, I mean... Another Her, movie star. Another movie star, yeah. It, there's a lot of movie stars in this. But um, her being in the film felt to me very much like a, a shoehorned way to, to, to try to show, like, despite all of, all of Al Pacino's problems and his personal demeanor, 
he means well and he's a good guy and he cares about other people that I'll, I'll just come out and say it like, like when I was watching it this time around I was like nothing lines up with the whole suicide plot and them going to the ER together like he had already moved out of the house like that day and he's he's like moved into a hotel and he comes back to the hotel and finds his stepdaughter has slashed her wrists in the bathtub of his hotel how did she know where he was how did she get into the hotel like there's all kinds of questions there and then when he gets to the er carrying her bleeding body his wife's already there how does she know that her daughter slit her wrists? Like there's, there's just a yeah. lot of like weird unanswered stuff. I solely think this to is, set up this conversation. Yeah. That's like, you're, you're really a good guy, Al Pacino. Don't, don't feel so bad. This is the style of the movie, right? Yeah. Things like a phone call are not interesting unless it's a phone call about a robbery that's about to happen. Yeah. Uh, the details of who talks to who about their domestic situation is not interesting unless it's a tip about how to catch someone. Mm -hmm. This actually brings us to something um, like Michael Mann talking about what this was about, what this movie was. Yeah. And he says people characterize heat as a crime thriller, but that's the last thing that it is, at least in my mind, it's plot is driven by a crime story and a police story to a certain point. This is lunatic. I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about. Right. But okay. Its plot is driven by a crime story and a police story to a certain point. Then it breaks into a kind of chorus. In the, and I assume that's a Greek chorus. In that chorus, we see slices of these different people's lives. It isn't a crime film to me. I don't concern myself that much with genre categorization. <laughs> to me, Heat was always a highly structured, realistic, symphonic drama. I never thought of it as doing a genre piece. And so this, that sentence, that paragraph right there is why I struggled so hard watching it this time around because I, I had read that and I thought that's not how I remember it. Right. And, so if and you I, take as I rewatched word, it, yeah. it was clear, dude, you spent way more time on what the gun sounded like than you did on, on this quote, symphonic drama. Yeah. And, and the realism of the crime piece is so much so that I, Oh my God, there were people who tried to do what they saw in the movie. Yeah. Like there's there's a history this of is nuts. armored car robberies in South Africa, Colombia, Denmark, Norway, and then a North Hollywood shootout where some guys tried to rob a bank the same way mm -hmm. that our leads robbed the bank in heat. And they got fucking killed. Mm -hmm. They they hurt a bunch of people and they got themselves killed. And uh, a lot of people tried to be like the robbers and no one really took any lessons from how the men and women interacted in this drama. That's, that's my point. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I do, I genuinely enjoy this movie. Like it is, it is a pleasure to watch it every time, but watching it this time around, I was really aware that the things that man says were his priority, both were not as evident in the film as he would like them to be and are not what the audience takes away from this. And it's interesting that people, uh, people disagree with Michael Mann who like him. The audience disagrees with him. Folks like, uh, okay, we've got this, uh, this sort of feature about the movie from uh, Chris Klimek in Dissolve. Yeah. And straight up, the writer says, this is not the most successful or the most loved or the you know most powerful movie that Michael Mann's ever made, but it is the most Michael Mann movie. 
that Michael Mann made. And this is in the wake of like Oscars for Ali and the insider movies about real people and, and real stakes, real situations. Mm. Um, but folks will still say this movie, the way it shoots LA, the way it shows these criminals, the way it talks about these cops, this is what Michael Mann is all about. The other stuff is sort of a surprise. Oh, except for Public Enemies, which was John Dillinger, Oof, right? Which is movie. just a, a remake of Heat <laughs> without, a, without a shootout. <laughs> that is not a good movie, by the way. No, it's not. It's not. Um, he goes back to a 1997 interview with Mann. So remember, Mann is now, as we're recording this, talking about potentially trying to pitch Heat as a TV show remake. Uh, Leading with a novel. Yeah. In 1997, he said, yeah, you couldn't do something like this as a TV show because the screen's too small. It won't give you the cityscape of L.A. He he is in love with skylines. Yeah. This is a, and, a real important thing to him. And so this is where the change in uh, television sizes and shapes yeah. really affects how he's going to approach his work. Yeah, so he says, you you know, the screen's too small. It's not going to be an experience. It's not going to show you the the place that you're actually in. Um, and now this gets into a major theme of this movie that we haven't even talked about yet, which is that L.A. is as much a character in this as any of these other people. And that the way that they shot this film was in a purposeful way to show parts of L.A. that you don't normally see in blockbuster cinema. And so they wanted to really show, and this is the quote from this Dissolve article, the jagged industrial, our business is not the business, Los Angeles, that's rarely glimpsed. And I think that because that sounds kind of cliche, you can point out just how influential Heat was in how people were starting to shoot crime and, and shoot uh, uh, television set in L.A., trying to escape that kind of, oh, yeah, L.A. can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. And trying to find a way to present Los Angeles as its own place, its own identity, separate from the movies. Yeah. That were yeah. being shot within it. Um, there's a lot of talk about the infamous De Niro Pacino meet up and sit down and have coffee scene. I don't know if I really want to spend too much time naval. There's no about need that. to. We what we can do is we can say that it was what everybody wanted to talk about. Yeah. But the reason that it was important is because we see De Niro and Pacino in character, obviously, talking to each other about their work. One's a bank robber, one's a cop, talking about their work and talking about the things that are important um, to both of them and then what's important to only one of them. And it sets up everything about how this movie's going to end. Yeah. Right. What's yeah. the line from the radiator heaven, right? They say, ultimately, heat is about choices. They straight up say to each other, hey, if this is what's going to happen, if I have to take you out, I'm not going to hesitate. You know, if if it's between you and an innocent person, I'm going to take you down fast. And it's about the idea that these guys are going to make decisions in a kind of moment that for some of us, me in particular, would not be able to even think, mm, you know, yeah, a highly yeah. violent, high stake, a, a high violence, high stakes situation. And there's more in here from man about how, how important LA was to him as being the setting of the film. 
talking about uh, he wanted to capture parts of the city that he had seen at two in the morning, whether he was on top of a gas tower or a roof or flying over it in an LAPD helicopter. There's a glow that it has that's unique and Western that he wanted to capture in this film. Uh, Apparently, he even hired a professional consultant whose whole job was to guide the crew through uh, finding, you know, these dark, jittery parts of L.A. that we we hadn't seen before. And in fact, I believe we have a notation from that person here in the research notes. Uh, Yeah, here it is. Uh, Location manager and scout Lori Balton. Uh, Balton goes on to say, you know, in, in her job, sometimes it's not the actual location you're looking for, the, but it's the story and the legwork that goes into finding what actually ends up on the screen. Um, he said Balton has been working on location for almost 30 years. She's the first location professional to be invited to join the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She joined in 2013. And apparently for this film, man told her, he needed, and here we here we go again, realism and authenticity in the locations. And he wanted the tapestry of L.A. to show places that have never been shown before on film. You had to really have great respect for the work and the process. Because if you didn't, you weren't going to find anything special enough for Michael Mann. And by special enough, I don't mean necessarily, ooh, look at that. You could just be talking about the fact that he needed a certain perspective on a road or something but it was very particular. There was this whole idea of having to shoot in South Central as opposed to adding graffiti and razor wire to something that was in Santa Monica. <laughs> yeah, so the um, obsession with authenticity that is, in a lot of ways, surface, mm-hmm. right? How something moves, how something looks, what it evokes, but to match what he has experienced as a as a writer and artist exploring criminality. Yeah. Well, I think this is, this is where I'm getting out of this after all of the research, Charlie, is that Michael Mann's priority with this film, I'm not going to say about this with him in general. I haven't seen enough of his films to, to make a judgment one way or the other, but with this film, he was really concerned about realism and authenticity, but only insofar as they went with the style of the film and the plot of the film, the characters, which he does talk about, you know, being important to him and the themes seem to have been left by the wayside when it comes to authenticity and realism. Yes. It's a movie. It's a movie movie, you know, Mm -hmm. right. Despite all the work that he puts into it as a film. uh, And I, I use those words in kind of a silly way, you know, film, like an important film versus hey, let's go see a movie. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's what Michael Mann, the energy he put into it to make a heist picture was not only like stylistically making it shockingly authentic and compelling, but also he surrounded all of the kind of genre moments with as much sort of kind of authentic living you know hey look they're Mm -hmm. real people they have wives and girlfriends they they have um kids they are living a life they're talking through things they're you know it's it's like this um it's like a workplace drama right where the workplace actually takes over the story unlike most workplace dramas which are about hey 
how can we look at what makes people people set against a hospital, set against a police station, set against yeah. a, you know, a, a law office or whatever. Instead, it's more like, hey, can we make cops and crooks into a kitchen sink drama? And he doesn't, but the amount of work that he put into it to try to make it that makes the movie incredibly compelling. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.